0: Shabbat Shalom and welcome to UIWU. This is our Sabbath morning scripture study. After a little bit of technical difficulty, Dave called in and we were able to work it out. Uh, it seems like we are only broadcasting live to YouTube this morning. So hopefully, those who would normally watch on Facebook can find us here on YouTube this morning. But have no fear. We'll uh, we'll record this uh, both audio and video, and we'll post the links later. Uh, apologize. That is the nature of technical difficulties. So we are good to go. Uh, let me send one message here um, so that others can, who are helping, can help me push this message. Okay. So today we are still in our study on the prophets and this morning I have sort of a different class uh, because one of the things that I wanted to establish uh, going into some subsequent things that I have planned is to show how at times people have misunderstood certain key prophecies and these misunderstandings have gotten into the culture, if you will, to such a degree that it's hard to think about these prophecies in any other way. So I wanted to uh, to take on the subject today, dealing primarily with interpretation. But what we've been doing up until this point is we've been training ourselves to take a good, close look at the words of the prophets, to study the words of the prophets, uh, and, and training, if you will, our eyes to see that which they're saying, sticking with what the prophets write. Don't add to or take away. Remember these, this ought to be our mantra, if you will, in Deuteronomy chapter four, verse two, and Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse one, do not add to or take away from. We want to be strict in our approach to Scripture. And one of the main reasons for that is because of this idea that's conveyed in the biblical text that the words of the prophets are not just random words. They're not just the words of men, but the words of the prophets represent the Word of God. It represents the message of the Creator to the people through this intermediary voice of the prophets. So when we look at the prophets' words, if we understand and if we believe that they represent the message that God has for his people, then we ought to be very careful in the way that we read and understand those words. Because if we begin to add to the words of the prophets or take away from the words of the prophets, uh, particularly when we're dealing with those sections of the prophets that Uh, suggest that they are conveying God's Word, then we are in violation of Deuteronomy 4.2 and Deuteronomy 13.1. So, the class today, what I wanted to do is to approach the subject of interpretation, and I'm going to do that in sort of an interesting way, I think. It's not that some of these misunderstandings are not known to you, but I really want to underscore them so that we know what it is that we should watch for in the future as we begin to study more in depth to understand these things on a deeper level. So, for instance, uh, I was talking to Mark before the class. If we have misunderstood certain prophecies, certain words of the prophets, and they are widespread misunderstood, then could it be that other prophecies are uh, misunderstood. And so, what I wanted to deal with this morning is interpretation, particularly when it's done wrong, okay? Now, having said that, I want you to take this... I want you to really take this to heart. When I bring out things that have been wrongly interpreted, it's not to make fun, It's not to ridicule. It's not... In other words, as I point some of these things out, particularly when it deals with Christian understanding, I don't want you to use these to go beat somebody up with, all right? Because you know some of these already. uh, But if you do that, you didn't get that encouragement from me. I want that to be very clear. What I'm doing is I'm taking examples from uh, ancient writings where people took what I believe is too much liberty with the original intent of the message, and I'm using these as examples. So it's not from a haughty, arrogant, making fun of position. Please understand that and know that from the beginning. Uh, Interpretation, when we talk about interpretation, we're talking about the action of explaining the meaning of something very simply we're looking at something and we're interpreting as you would interpret data we're looking at something and we're saying this is what it says and this is what it means and and this i believe is where most people get in trouble it's at that stage between reading a particular text from antiquity and applying a meaning to it that most people get off. And they've been doing so for hundreds if not thousands of years because it goes back to the idea of taking excessive liberty with the original intent. So this is what I want to focus on today. Now, as a general rule... As a general rule, for the most part, what I try to do is always begin with the text of Scripture, always begin there, and that's where we should always begin, is you read a text, any text, whatever it is you're looking at, and and you want to begin to look at it and try to understand, trying to discern, what did it mean in its original context, when it was originally spoken. And, and what, the way that you do that is you, you seek for understanding uh, not only in the immediate context by looking at words and phrases, uh, but you also want to look at the wider cultural context. You want to look at linguistics. You want to you ask yourself, is this the way this word or this phrase was understood at this time, and in this place, see? So you want to really drill down. Clarity is absolutely essential. It's important. We want to ensure that we understand what it is that the author was saying and what it is or what it was that the author intended the hearer or the reader to get from that message when it was spoken. Uh, You want to ask questions like, is my translation accurate? Because there are a lot of different translations out there, and and some of these are more accurate than others, and some are not accurate at all. So you want to first, you want to be able to look at the words and phrases in an English Bible. That's where we all start. But you want to use language tools and get back into the original language. What was it that the Hebrew or Aramaic here implied? So these are essential steps Uh, you know, as you build that wider context. Now, as a general rule, and I've taken this sort of to heart from the very first time that I heard it, and I think James or others can correct me, but I believe that this comes from Alexander Campbell. Uh, I always use this phrase, I speak where the Bible speaks, I'm silent where the Bible's silent, I call Bible things by Bible names and do Bible things in Bible ways. Now, that might bring together a couple of different quotes. But the idea is you want to go with what the text says as a beginning, and then from there you can look at other ideas. But I find it very helpful to begin any study um, with what the text says. So, what the, one of the rules that I have is... And and I often tell people, when I look at the Bible, I'll say, here's what it says. And as a general rule, I'll say, and that's what it means, right? Pretty simple. It says something, it means something. Our main task then becomes, what did those words mean when they were spoken? I don't try to help the text. And what I mean by that is, quite often... Translations or commentaries will insert ideas into the text meant to explain or meant to help the original author. That's a problem. Uh, I believe that this is one of the biggest problems today for people understanding Scripture, is that people have interjected other ideas which are not scriptural into the meaning of the text. And this is a major problem. So, so don't think that you're helping by adding words and phrases. And remember, not only Deuteronomy 4.2, Deuteronomy 13.1, but also remember Proverbs 30 and verse 6. If we add to God's Word, we'll be found to be a liar. So, those are pretty... Going into this idea of interpretation, please understand, we're going to begin with the text and and try not to put other ideas into the text. Don't help the author. Let's see what the author is saying. Where it's ambiguous, where it's a little bit maybe not so easy to understand, still don't add to the text. See, this is, this is what we want to stress. So, as a general rule, I want to begin by saying um, that I believe that the text generally says what the author intended it to say then we build from there without adding to or taking away from and and the way that we get clarity when the text is ambiguous is we look at the words and phrases how did that author use those same words and phrases and then how did other biblical writers use those words and phrases that's where we get the clarity never Get your clarity by inserting uh, words, phrases, concepts, ideas into a text. Find clarity by building a grid around it. Hopefully last week you did the exercise that I asked you to do, and there were a couple of texts that I asked you to write down side by side so that you could begin to look at some differences between two authors uh, or between two similar texts and fill in those difficult places, fill in those sections which might be ambiguous. Now, the way that a lot of people get away with, or at least justify uh, their misinterpretation, they will often say one of two things. They'll either say, "This, this is a type and a shadow, right? You ever hear that? Of course you have. Sometimes people will read a text about uh, something, let's say a certain animal, a sacrifice, and they'll say this was to picture or to foretell uh, or to look forward to, and they'll give their interpretation. Uh, and, and that happens in the ancient world quite a bit, some of those examples you're probably thinking of now. Uh, but what I want to do is I, wanna, I want us to shelve Those types and shadows, just for a minute. Number one, because types and shadows, that phrase, is never used in the Bible. So if you use types and shadows for the purpose of this class, take that and put it nicely on a shelf and turn away from it. The second thing that I want to caution you about is this idea, at least for the purpose of the class today, and probably, hopefully, for the rest of your life, is this idea of dual fulfillment. You ever hear this? Where a text, if if someone, if I show someone, I say, look, here's what it means in this context, they say, yeah, well, yeah, that's what it meant. Yes, historically, accurately, that's what it originally was, but it also means something else, okay? Just work with me today. And now, by the way, a lot of teachers uh, who teach types and shadows and dual fulfillment will use the phrase. Uh, it's it comes from Psalm sixty two eleven. 11. In fact, go with me. Let me just let me look at that one with you just so you have it in your notes, uh, because I think this is a problem. Psalm sixty 11. Um, let's see. Verse 12 in the Hebrew Now, remember, I'm reading one partial phrase from one Psalm, uh, totally out of context, but this is what a lot of people will use. God has spoken once, twice have I heard this. So, and, and you know the reason I know that text? Because I used to use it. I used to say, okay, yes, this means this in its historical setting, but God spoke once, and twice have I heard indicates that it points to another fulfillment. This is very popular among certain groups of people. Uh, They mean well. I'm going to assume the best in people as often as I can, Uh, but quite honestly and quite frankly, that's wrong. That idea, in my opinion is not supported by Scripture. Um, I want to give a few examples. But please, remember what I started with. These, even if you know these, even if you know these examples and how they have caused misunderstanding to the tune of billions, billions with a B of people... This is not a negative enterprise. I'm not doing this to single out and ridicule a group. In fact, what I'm going to tell you today is not just a Christian problem. The things and the sort of things that the ancient Christian writings do with some of these prophecies is prevalent. uh, The same sort of things are obvious to us in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, in Jewish literature, in the Talmud. So let's be careful and not throw stones at Christians. But what I want to do is use these examples because I know them better than any other, because they were very personal to me. They were things that I cherished and held true for many years. Okay, so enough of warning you to be sweet to your Christian neighbors. I want to begin this morning, and by the way, for those of you who may just be joining, uh, I typically teach only from the Hebrew Bible. This is to illustrate, so I'll use a few examples from uh, the Christian New Testament to make a point about how we should be very cautious when we approach the text of the Hebrew prophets. Uh, I'm going to talk to you this morning and use a couple of examples from uh, the the pen of the writer of Matthew's gospel. Okay. Now, uh, today's class is going to cover, in my view, some of the most misunderstood prophecies and uh, uh, ever. Okay. How do you say that better? Uh, the most misunderstood prophecies ever. That's about as good as I can get it. You get the point. So these are the top, and I think I have seven of them to go through. Uh, but these are the ones uh, in Matthew. I don't have Matthew. Yes, I do. I brought. I forgot. I brought my King James Bible here, but I don't need it because I've uh, I've learned these verses long ago. So I'm going to sort of tell you about them. I'm going to focus on the writer of Matthew in his second chapter this morning, first off, to make a couple of points. And uh, what we have is the Messiah, according to Matthew's second chapter, um, is wanting to show that there is prophetic significance in the fact that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, in Bethlehem, okay? So, I will say that from a historical point of view, I have no reason to doubt that. Some people don't even believe Jesus existed. I think they're wrong. I think they're very wrong. Uh, I'm very fond of the historical Jesus. So, I would say maybe he is born in Bethlehem. So, the writer of Matthew's gospel wants to build the case that, yes, of course he's born in Bethlehem. He has to be. Everybody knows that the prophet says he's got to be born there. So, um, now we've already talked about the Messiah and how people have sort of overstated uh, the Messiah in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, So, I'm not going to get into that. So, let's just build from there. Let's say that everybody is expecting, based on their understanding of the Hebrew Bible the birth of a Messiah, a coming Messiah. So, let's begin there. Just work with me. So, we begin there. This child is born in Bethlehem. So, the writer says, well, of course. So, Matthew's writer has that Herod hears about this, and Herod is grieved over this because he's the king. And if there's an uprising, here's someone else who contend for the throne. He doesn't take kindly to people who uh, try to contend for the throne. So, Herod calls in the wise men, and and then he calls in uh, the sages. I think the way it puts it in Matthew 2, he calls in the chief priest and the scribes, the ones who would know, and he asks the question, because they ought to know. So, where is the Messiah to be born? Now, some, I'm going to go back and forth here, some believe that this is not true, that they wouldn't have said this, that Matthew's making all this up. To the contrary, I believe this is exactly what they would say. I don't believe that this misunderstanding of this prophecy begins with uh, Matthew trying to add things, you know, so let's not blame the Christians. I think that this view was commonly understood at the time right now let me take just a break for just a second and to underscore that and to make that point more true in your hearing remember daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 behold i saw in the night visions and one like the son of man was coming on the clouds of heaven and he approached the ancient of days and so forth christians didn't make that up We find it in the Talmud. These beliefs about the coming of the Messiah, a messianic figure coming on the clouds, that wasn't made up by the preachers of the Baptist convention. This was a thought that goes back to antiquity, but it's a misunderstanding of Daniel chapter 7. We've already covered that. Daniel 7 is not talking about a singular figure who's coming on the clouds. Now back to the story in Bethlehem in Bethlehem the answer that the chief priest and the scribes according to the writing of Matthew the answer that they give is uh, in Bethlehem of Judea now clearly they're answering a question where is the Messiah going to be born The answer is, in Bethlehem of Judea. It's a place. The question is, tell me the place. The answer is, here's the place. Now, they want to underscore that. They want to prove that. So, they say, um, Judea is a place for it is written in the prophets. Now, assume for a moment that you really want to know where the messiah will be born because everybody's expecting the messiah to come uh and and who would you ask you would ask the ones who would likely know the ones who would likely know don't want to not have an answer so their answer is a w- yes we know the place and we have proof of it by the prophets now you've got my attention right now i know you've you know this but but I want you to work with me here because we're going to go through some of these. And you, so then they quote, you know, Herod's still waiting. He's like, okay, okay, the prophets say, I'm, I'm ready. And they say, because, and you Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Wow, there it is. Now, if you were to Google or open a Christian Bible that has a nice section in the back that shows fulfillment of Messianic prophecies, uh, mainly in a Christian Bible, or only in a Christian Bible, uh, it's going to list this one, Micah 5. Micah, that's where he's quoted. The chief priests and the scribes are presenting as evidence, exhibit, please place exhibit uh, into the courthouse here, that it says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. It's a place. Now, we know that that's true. Bethlehem Ephratah is a place. Go with me. I even touched on this last week, but go with me to Genesis 35. Genesis 35 and verse 16. Okay? And they journeyed from Bethel... And there was but a little way to come to Ephrat. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Fear not, you shall have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrat, which is Bethlehem. Now, uh, in the way to Ephrat in Hebrew is Bederek Ephrata. So when when this is recorded in Genesis thirty-five, Ephrata is the word Ephrat with a what's called the Hay directive in Hebrew. So, if I can talk about the place, I can say, hey, go, um, where are you going to be? At Ephrat. I can say, I'm going to be at Ephrat. But if I want to give you, you know, a direction, I would say, on the way towards Ephrat, in Hebrew, you say Ephrata. So, Beit Lechem, means Bethlehem, you know, towards Ephrat. It's very specific. But the wise men or or the chief priest and the scribes don't say, well, you know, there is this story in Genesis 35 about Bethlehem Ephratah. Now, if they would would have thought about it, they could have connected Micah 5 with Genesis 35 because that would have been really good, but they didn't see this part. Now, here's what I would have done. I would have said, yeah, Micah 5, it says going to be born in Bethlehem. And by the way, you remember in Micah 5 where it talks about when she who travails will give forth again? In Genesis 35, it's about Rachel having children, a child. So, you see, then, then you can connect the two. Genesis 35 talks about a travail, um, and Micah 5 talks about a woman who was giving birth will give birth again. Look, I... Hey, interesting... In fact, a good prophecy teacher listening to me today might even say, you know, God has spoken once, twice have I heard, but that would be injecting things. So, let's think about this. When the scribes and the chief priest use Micah 5, uh, when they use Micah 5 as their... Uh, evidence of the birthplace of the Messiah, it requires them to make some changes to Micah 5. Okay? So, in Matthew's writing, um, there it says, the wise men mention in the land of Judea. Right? In the land of Judea. Now, just for your information, the phrase, in the land of Judea, does not occur in Micah 5. Now, you might look at a Christian Bible, and it will show that that prophecy uh, that they're working with, Micah 5, they'll say, see Micah 5. But if you're careful and you go see Micah 5, you'll say, wait a minute, Micah 5 doesn't say, in the land of Judea. Now, is Bethlehem in the land of Judea? I'm not arguing the geography of the scribes and the chief priest. In fact, I'm telling you, I think that this could historically be true, that chief priest and scribes were asked this question. My question is, why are they doing this to Micah 5? And does Micah 5 have anything to do with the birthplace of a coming messiah first off micah 5 talks about a ruler uh, and you go well yeah that's the messiah maybe it is but let's use the biblical phrase who is this ruler who whose goings forth mitzvah whose goings forth are from antiquity from ancient days who is that i don't know i don't know yet but Um, We need to look at this because Beit Lechem, if you say land of Judah, clearly you want to indicate that it's a place. But Micah 5, go to Micah 5. When you go to Micah 5, we're going to look at this and we're going to say, is that really talking about a place at all? Micah 5. Now, I just want to read uh, verse 1, the first part of verse 1. It's actually in English. I think it's verse 2. But you, Beit Lechem Ephratah, there's our word. Is it the place of Genesis 35? Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, uh, that is to be ruler of Israel, his goings forth are from ancient time, from days of old, and it goes on. The writer of Matthew leaves out Ephrata altogether. Matthew's writer says uh, the land of Judea, but and he says you Bethlehem, it doesn't mention Ephrata. You get to notice carefully the subtle changes. This is the way people uh, get misled in, in their interpretation. Um, and they the phrase, land of Judah, the word land of Judah, is substituted in Matthew's gospel because Micah 5 doesn't say land of Judah. You know what it says in Micah 5? The clans of Judah, or literally, Baalfei Yehuda, the thousands of Judah. So, how do you go from uh, the clans of Judah, or the thousands, Baalfei Yehuda? How do you take that and say, you know, this would be better for my point if I changed the wording to say, land of Judah? Well, if I do that, if I say land of Judah instead of thousands of Judah, it sure makes it a lot easier to point out the uh, that this text implies a place. And the question is, is this a big deal? Well, I think it is. And I think you should think it is. If you intend to look at the prophets and understand their words and what it was that they originally intended, if we can take the words of a prophecy and change them to make them fit our ideas, our ideologies, our hopes, our wishes, then, then we're in trouble. What if we said, look, I just want to know... My question when I look at Micah 5 is, who is the ruler? Of course, it's a good question. And what does it mean in Micah 5 when it says, um, Umotzaotav. Umotzaotav, his goings forth. That's plural. Who is the ruler whose goings forth are from ancient times? Look, that I read that phrase and I go, oh man, who is this? But I tell you what I'm not willing to do. I'm not willing to assign that to someone that I want it to be favorable towards by changing the words of the prophecy. What I choose to do is to look at the words of the prophecy and, and get the clues from the text itself, not put my clues in it. Does that make sense? Now, I know this might be difficult for some, but please bear with me. I'm only doing this to ascertain what it is that it originally intended. So if we to if we want to know what the text meant, uh, we need to stick with the text. And so in Micah 5, this seems to be talking about a particular family particular family, uh, a line, a lineage. You say, really? Yes, I mean, I really do. I think that this can be shown to be the case. We're talking about the thousands of Judah. We're talking about the clans of Judah. And as I pointed out a few weeks back, looking at this text for another purpose, uh, I pointed out, and James Tabor covers this extensively in several of his books, talking about this family line. But if you think about it, you know, you work through First Chronicles, and you see these names, Belech, Emephretah, Yehuda. it's all clustered in there, okay? Now, the writer of John's gospel, I'm not going to go there, but off the top of my memory, it's like chapter 7 in verse 42, John's gospel also entertains, you know, the question is, well, wait a minute, I thought Jesus is from Nazareth, and, and John's, the writer of John's gospel says in chapter 7, uh, he'll be from the descendant of David and from the place of Bethlehem. In other words, he's pulling both ideas. Uh, is he alluding to uh, Micah 5, perhaps? You know, I don't know. I don't know. Quite possibly, but, but that's the way that that gets around it. Now, I'm not uh, finished with Matthew yet because I'm talking about some of the most misunderstood prophecies, uh, and the reason they're most misunderstood is that today there are two billion Christians in the world. Two billion, roughly, give or take a few. Uh, And I put all Christians together, so if a person is listening and you're Uh, one denomination, don't think, well, you're including that group and they're not real Christians. I'm a real Christian, they're not. I mean all that that believe that these texts point to Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth. So the idea is that um, whenever we look at these texts, though, uh, the reason that they're so important to tick them off as the most misunderstood is that most people have their only understanding of these texts from the Christian tradition. So, Christians, the way they know Micah 5, Bethlehem, is that that's where Jesus is born. Now, here's the good news. Two billion people know about Micah 5. All we have to do is say, let's go look at Micah 5 and see what it talks about. So, applaud, see, that that many people, thank God that that... it's, It's how I learned. Look, here's an old King James... You know, this uh, this is how I learned about Micah 5 uh, was because of Christianity. Now, Matthew has to find another prophecy because according to the way, and this could probably have happened, Jesus' family goes to Egypt and they come back. So, the writer of Matthew says, I need a text. I need a way to explain why this Messiah goes to Egypt and comes back. And Matthew says, I got it. I got one. And so what does he do? He quotes Hosea, uh, and, and here's the way he leads up to that. Herod dies, and they return, the family returns, And the writer of Matthew says this, that it might be fulfilled. What might be fulfilled? What was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I have called my son. Every Christian Bible which has a list of prophecies fulfilled will have this one listed. Out of Egypt. It said in Hosea that the Messiah would come out of Egypt because God called him out of Egypt? And here it is. Now, the question is, is that what Hosea meant when he said the piece that Matthew quoted? And the answer is no. It's not that it can be understood a different way Hosea 11 is not talking about that. Hosea 11 is, in fact, go to Hosea 11. We'll just take a a look at a couple of pieces of this. Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. I called my son out of Egypt. Now, this... You know, at first glance, you go, well, wow, there it is. But if you begin at the white space in chapter 10, verse 9, you know, remember the Hebrew chapters uh, or the original chapters in these books based on the open and closed sections, the white spaces, if you will, uh, don't often correspond or don't always correspond with our English chapters in both Christian and Jewish Bibles. Chapters were designed by Christians. Again, applaud. Thank you. Makes it easier for us to find it. But these ancient divisions, these white spaces, clearly bring us uh, to the broader context. And it's talking uh, about Israel. It begins in verse 9 of chapter ten. 10, O Israel, you have sinned more than in the days of Givah. There they have remained, shall not war overtake them, those children of iniquity. And it goes on and it talks about the chastisement. Then when you get down uh, to verse uh, 1 of chapter 11, Israel was a child, I loved him, and called my son out of Egypt. This is talking about God calling Israel out of Egypt. Now, he refers poetically to Israel as his child. He talks about how Um, he taught, look at verse 3, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they knew not that I had healed them. Go with me to Exodus chapter 4. We're talking about the Son of God. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Thus says Jehovah, Israel is my son, my firstborn, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. Some, if you look at this, this idea of Israel as the Son of God, it's over and over. Now, what some might suggest is, yeah, that's the old covenant, but the new covenant, Son of God, is is God has spoken once, twice have I heard. There's another fulfillment. Well, let me tell you something. That new covenant is spoken of in Jeremiah 31 and in that same chapter, Jeremiah 31, please, it does mention the Son of God. It does. And it, it's fitting that the New Covenant text of the Hebrew Bible, uh, uh, putting looking forward to the New Covenant, it's, it's fitting that it would mention God's Son. The New Covenant's about God's Son. Yes, it is. Uh, chapter 31, verse 9 uh, let's see, In uh, I'm sorry, verse 8 in the Hebrew. They shall come with weeping, with supplication will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Look down at verse, uh, 19 of chapter 31. Of uh, Jeremiah. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a darling child? For whenever I speak of him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my inward parts are moved for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says Jehovah. The Son of God is mentioned. God did save God's son, his son, out of Egypt. Hosea 11, Exodus 4, Jeremiah 31. And while we're in Jeremiah 31, Matthew uses this text again in Jeremiah 31. It's very important to use the New Testament, New Covenant text in the New Testament, you see, because the New Testament is claimed to be the New Covenant. And the New Covenant is... Jeremiah thirty-one. So Matthew's writer says that in Bethlehem, Herod wants to squash this uh, potential claimant to the throne. So he issues an edict that all the male children should be killed in Bethlehem and to the coast thereof. See, so there there is a there is an attack on. On the children, and evidently, at least according to Matthew's writer, uh, lots of uh, males are killed. Now, it says in Matthew's writing that this was fulfilled, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So he sees the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem. And he says, Oh, and it's found in Jeremiah, the prophecies of Jeremiah, which he says, says, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her sons, and would not be comforted because they are not. Does Jeremiah say that? Yeah. I'm not even going to pick on does it say exactly that? Let's just say yes. Look at Jeremiah 31, uh, verse 14. And by the way, this verse is set off totally by white spaces. Jeremiah 31, 14. Thus says Jehovah, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted for her children because they are not. There it is. So, Matthew's writer says, that's what we're seeing here. But look at verse 15. Is it? In other words, does this mean that children are being slaughtered? Verse 15, thus says Jehovah, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says Jehovah, and they shall come back again from the land of the enemy. Who? Who's coming back from the land of the enemy? Who's he telling to stop weeping? There is hope for your future, says Jehovah, and your children, the ones that she's weeping for because they are not, shall come back again to their own border. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus, and so forth and so on. The idea in Jeremiah 31 is is Rachel is weeping because her children... Look, I'm a parent, I'm a grandparent, and, and I can't imagine, you know, if my children weren't around me, and I'm blessed, most of them live close. But if I never saw them, I'd be sad. I get to see some of my grandkids enough that I'm actually happy when they come and happy when they go. I see them that much, but I couldn't imagine not seeing my children. And that's what this is describing. It's not that Rachel is crying because her kids have been slaughtered. She's lamenting that they're not at home. God says, stop crying. They're coming back. So Matthew's writer takes a text that meant something and said it meant something else. That's what happened. While we're talking about the new covenant, look at verse 31, verse 30 in the Hebrew. Behold, days are coming, behold, days are coming, says Jehovah. "...when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which covenant of mine they broke, though I was a husband to them," says Jehovah. "...but this shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days," says Jehovah. "...I will put my Torah in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. I will be their God, they shall be my people." They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, No, Jehovah, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says Jehovah. I will forgive their iniquity, remember their sin no more. That's the new covenant. Now, this is the only passage in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, which mentions the new covenant. You might say, well, but there are others that talk about an everlasting covenant and so forth, and the heart of stone will be turned. Okay. But I mean, word for word, the new covenant is only mentioned here. And we learn some things about this new covenant. Um, We know what people believe that this new covenant will bring. They get all sorts of theological things that are supposedly to be brought in by the new covenant. You know, I I know people don't say it this way, but it's sort of like the Hebrew Bible presented the Jew covenant. I've heard this before. I didn't make this up. I don't even like it, but I'm using it to to illustrate Uh, that it represents the Jew covenant. The new covenant is for everyone. You see, it opens the door. The veil has been ripped. You've heard all that. That's what most people believe. Uh, But that's uh, that's not what we're talking about here. Um it's interesting too, knowing what people believe that the new covenant also brings, it's this atonement brought by another, when that the verse right before the passage I just read says the no longer, verse twenty eight in the Hebrew, in those days. They shall say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own sin. And every man that eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. It's interesting that that leads us into uh, the new covenant. That idea, by the way, of uh, everyone paying for their own sins is found in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, and also it goes back to the Torah Deuteronomy 24 verse 16, you know, this idea that that each will pay for their own sins. And the other thing about this covenant is that this covenant is not like, and then it goes on to say, uh, this covenant will be written on the heart. That's something that we only find in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 6, and uh, write these words on your heart. Uh, Deuteronomy eleven eighteen, 18, Deuteronomy 32, 46. Uh, and then, you know, we see other texts like Psalm 37 and 31 where the righteous ones are the ones that have the Torah written on their heart. And then you have Isaiah 51, 7. I know you know all these verses, but Isaiah 51, 7 talks about you who have the Torah written on your heart. It's this, uh, this righteous remnant, if you will. Now, There are plenty of other texts uh, that are misunderstood, and some of them have to do with prophetic figures. Why did I bring these texts up? Because I want to kind of get ready for some things that are coming, and if, if some of these texts get the place wrong, get the intended meaning wrong... In other words, if we've inherited lies, um, what other lies have we inherited? And again, I'm not picking on Christians. I think that Jews have just as many uh, problems in their interpretive methods, if not more. You know, because people people tend to add to and take away from. So, if we're ever going to sort this out, we have to put aside our uh, theological leanings that we insert into the text and just start with the text. Now, I'm going to shift gears a little bit because I want to get us ready to go back into in the next few weeks these prophetic figures because if we've been wrong about some of these other things, then maybe we're wrong about other details about the figure. So, let's use someone that, uh, not this Messiah figure or the ruler or any of the things that we've talked about recently. Let's talk about Lucifer. Let's talk about the devil. Let's talk about Satan just for a moment because we're talking about prophetic figures, right? Look with me at Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14. I'm going to go with the other side, the bad side, of the figures that that we expect from the Bible. And I know some of you are saying, oh, I don't believe in that. Well, just hang with me for a minute. Uh, Isaiah 14, verse... But I can't read it in that. I have to read it in my old King James. Oh, this is the English Bible, Ross. Isaiah 14. Get ready. Get ready. Isaiah 14. And let's see what verse I need. Verse 12, I think. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? You said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also in the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. The devil, Lucifer. Hasatan, the Satan. This, by the way, is one of the most... uh, one of the worst misrepresentations of prophetic words ever. Now, I started... I brought this out. Look, Look at this big Bible. This is a Dake. Dake's Annotated Reference Bible. I started my journey with this big bad boy right here and read... Every I hadn't pulled this out, I don't know, 25 years probably. I read every note. I, I looked through and saw everything that I marked in some of my early musings. And, you know, Dake had some uh, great insights and a lot of knowledge, but also I had to unlearn a lot when I left this aside. Um. But this particular passage, um, when, whenever you look at it in context, is only part of what... Uh, now, I know a lot of people are already saying, well, that's talking about the king of Babylon. Yeah, of course, but get, give me just a minute to, to tell you what it is I want to show you in these texts. Because here, look down at... Um, let's go back to verse 13... Um, Chapter 13 and verse 1. The burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, lift ye up a banner upon the high mountain, exalt the voice unto them, shake the hand, that they may go into the gates of the nobles. This begins, Isaiah 13 begins something interesting. It begins a series of what are called in Hebrew massa burden, uh, prof- prophetic utterances against Babylon. And and what you'll notice is, is that he is very much talking about this Lucifer, so to speak, that the King James puts a capital L on, is not a being, it's not a name, it's talking about the king of Babel and it's using poetic language, but I wanted to just draw out something. You see this phrase? This is back to what we started a few weeks ago. Lift ye up a banner. Now, I want you to hold your hand here and go to chapter 5 of Isaiah. Chapter 5, verse 26. Um, and he will lift up an ensign... "...to the nations far off, and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth, and behold, they shall come with speed swiftly." I'm just reading that one verse. You notice the similarity there? This deals with the lifting of a banner. That's what this text deals with in chapter 13 of Isaiah, lifting the banner. So if lifting the banner in 13 has to do with the king of Babylon then maybe chapter 5, verse 26 has to do with the king of Babylon and a certain historical setting. Oh, well look, let's go to chapter 11 of uh, Isaiah and look at verse 12. And he will lift up or put up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now... If the lifting of the banner in chapter 13 verse 2 is the same lifting of the banner in chapter 5 verse 26 and the language is the same in chapter 11 and verse 12, then possibly all of these prophecies deal with the same events. Could it be? Well, maybe the same phrase used in Isaiah 18 and verse 3 which says, "...all ye inhabitants of the world..." And dwellers of the earth see ye, plural, when he lifts up an ensign on the mountains and when he blows the trumpet here. Maybe they all refer to the same event. Now, have we taken, for instance, Isaiah 11, which deals with the lifting of an ensign, attributed that to a messianic figure we long for in the future? Could it be, just could it be, we're talking I'm going to talk more about it in another class, but could it be that these phrases indicate that it has something to do with some other period? Period. That's all I'm going to say about that now. Now look at Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 and verse uh, 3. Isaiah 14, verse 3. This is the white space, by the way. And it will come to pass on that day that Jehovah shall give you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and from the hard bondage in which you were made to serve. And you shall take up this proverb against the king of Babel and say, how has the oppressor ceased? The golden city ceased. Jehovah has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers that smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing. Yea, the Cypress rejoice at thee in the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you are laid low, uh, no feller has come up against us. Sheol from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirs up the shades for thee. All the chief ones of the earth, it is raised up from their thrones, all the kings of the nations. It goes on. Look at verse 11. Thy pomp is brought down to Sheol and the noise of your lutes. Worms are spread under thee and worms cover thee. How are you fallen from heaven, O bright star, son of the morning? Look, I grew up believing that satan lucifer was one of the angels that he was part of the choir in fact he was a leader of the choir his voice pipe his pipes his lutes See, had music he was a song leader always made me nervous around the song leader in the church i went to you know i was thinking because yeah. i associated this song leader here's satan you know but the idea is that there's something that people have taken out of context. Because here, this whoever this is said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. I'll ascend above the the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. You shall be brought down to shield to the depths of the pit. So, an entire theological position is birthed from this. Lucifer led a rebellion. He left his singing career in the choir, was cast out of heaven. That's what people teach. But it's not just taken from Isaiah 14. Go to to Ezekiel 28. Now, look, I had a delay, so I don't remember what time I started. Do you? Do you know what Okay, well here we go. Chapter 28, um, verse 2, the uh, verse 2b, thus says Adonai Jehovah, because your heart is lifted up, because you said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God, in the heart of the seas, yet you're a man, not God. You have set your heart as the heart of God. Behold, you're wiser than Daniel. There's no secret that can hide; they can hide from you, and with your wisdom and your understanding, you've acquired riches and have gotten gold and silver in your treasures by your great wisdom and by your trading and so forth and so on. Now, look down at verse 12. Um, Thus says Adonai Jehovah, you are a seal and a paragon, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty, you've been in eden the garden of god every precious stone was your covering the ruby the chrysalis the diamond the emerald the sholham the jade the sapphire turquoise and the barrel and gold the workmanship of your settings and your sockets was in you in the day that you were created they were prepared you were the far covering cherub and I have set you so, and you were upon the holy mountain of God. You walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were perfect in ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. This idea, again, supports this theological made-up story about uh, Lucifer who was in the Garden of Eden. So then you, you, you see all of these stories are interpretations this is talking about the king of Tyre. It begins in chapter 26 and works all the way through. You have to know that contextually these are pointing somewhere else. In Micah 5, in Micah 5, it's important that we look at the details. Go back there just to kind of pull this point together. In Micah 5, it says this, because I want to know, I really still want to know who this is. You may think you know who it is, but let, let me read contextually what has to fit But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me that is to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from ancient time, from days of old. Therefore will he give them up until the time when she who travails has brought forth them the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the name of... Uh, I'm sorry, in the strength of Jehovah, in the majesty of the name of Jehovah his God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great to the ends of the earth. And this shall be peace, when Ashur shall come into our land, and when he shall tread in our palaces... Then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. And they shall graze the land of Ashur with the sword and the land of Nimrod with the keen blade. Thus shall he deliver us from Ashur when he comes to our land and when he treads within our border. Is that the ruler from Bethlehem who will do this? Context is important. What about... Another passage that's been misunderstood in Joel chapter 2, verse 32 in the English, "All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." You know that contextually, uh, billions of people have said that that referred to when they call upon the name of the Lord, like, you know, you invite the Lord to be your Lord and Savior. But contextually, that's not what it's talking about. To get the context, you have to read chapter 2, verse 15 of Joel, through chapter 4, verse 8. I don't have time to do that today. Interpretation is, of course, required. I'm not going to suggest that it doesn't, uh, that it isn't needed in order to properly discern the meaning of a text and being fair about it being being as close to the text as what the author originally intended what we need to do is refer to the words that were originally spoken and let's let's look at those words let's not add words to it let's not try to make it uh, a little bit easier to understand Let's just go with what it says. Um, you know, do, you ask yourself, do I have clarity? Is my translation right? Can I find other words and phrases which say uh, the same thing, which mention the same ideas? Um, you, this is what's required. I think it's very important that we look at the text and we take the text for what it says and not add to it. That's my main point. So, um, some people have been taught things that simply aren't biblical. And so, what I want to do is I want to focus on the text. This is not meant to take away our, uh, anyone's cherished beliefs. That's not my intention. I, again, I wanted to close with the same thing I opened with. It's not to be used to beat somebody up and to say, oh, you're wrong, matthew got this wrong. Look, Matthew is just part of the milieu of the day. He, he's part of a culture that did this all the time. And to this day, Christians, Jews... We, we call ourselves the people of the book, but we're the, we're the people of the book and other ideas which are not of the book. I'm not trying to question the words of the prophets. What I'm trying to do is understand their words in the original context. Now, I have something very special planned uh, for next week and it deals with the first and the last, and I hope you can join me next Shabbat. Sorry about the technical difficulties, uh, but I think we're on top of it now. Shabbat Shalom, Shavua Tov, many blessings.